<clears throat> so what I'm doing today is combining the lesson and the update. Uh, you'll know that I'm starting the lesson when that happens. <laughs> That's how you'll know. So <clears throat> there's been some discomfort in our community of late. And despite the discomfortedness of the discomfort, I actually think it's a good thing that we are experiencing as a community. Tumult is uncomfortable. And right now, things are not comfortable in our community. But I believe that what we're experiencing is a good thing. In the last lesson, Chris Gravy used this metaphor. We have the option of going and digging around in all of this uncomfortable stuff, or we have the option of painting right over the mold. <laughs> I thought that was a great metaphor. And so really, our only choices are dig, dig this stuff up, because it's there, or paint over it. So it's good. But even though it's good, it's hard. And I was bemoaning the hardness of it uh, this week, and I said something like, you know, most ministers this week are getting to talk about baby Jesus. How hard is that? Come on, everybody likes baby Jesus. <laughs> so today, I decided I'm going to. I'm going to talk about baby Jesus. But first, our weekly update. So if you're a newcomer, you're aware we had an election. If you're a newcomer, you're aware that there's been national upheaval of emotion. Uh, if you're a newcomer, you are aware that there is a lot in our nation that is not right, and that not rightness has been pressed into our collective awareness in a very assertive way. Hurts that have long been swept under the carpet are no longer sweeping. But if you're a newcomer, you might not be aware that something is happening here in our spiritual community where we have decided to engage this upsurge in emotion and to engage this rising tide of awareness and to see if we can do so informed by the spiritual journey. If the spiritual journey is rooted in oneness as our ancient texts and as our saints and as our sages all insist, if the spiritual journey heals our souls and our instincts and our reactions, then we might be able to engage this moment in our national life in productive and reconciling and awakening ways. So we're working on the assumption that the spiritual life can awaken us and that we can have a hand in following Jesus and being repairers of a broken world and bring healing to what is wounded and restoring what is lost. But it's a risky endeavor because feelings are running high and hurts are running deep. So, newcomer, you should know this. This is an uncomfortable time in our community, which is kind of unusual for us because we don't tend to hurt one another's feelings. So this is a challenging time. It really is tough for us. Now, I've been listening carefully to our community's stories lately. And as I've been listening, I've had a metaphor emerge in my mind that I think is a good one. It is the metaphor of molten lava. There is this big pot of boiling, surging pressure under the surface. And then every once in a while, there's a vent out of which all of this pressure comes. When we look at the vent and we see the vent and we get embroiled in the vent, we might be missing the bigger issue of the, the roiling pot that is under the surface. Well, that's happening in our society, but it's happening here as well in our community. Things that are going on under the surface are boiling up out of certain vent points. And when that submerged magma just emerges, boils over, it comes out in words. Words like race or racism, words of politics, words of economics, 
words of gender and sexual identity. Now the words, the vents, they point to real things, very real things. But as we've seen so many times, the thing is not always the thing. The thing under the thing is the thing. In other words, when we go look at all the energy that is manifest around the words and around the topics and around the points of, of, of conflict, if we don't take into account this big boiling pot of stuff that's under the surface, then we may not be effective in dealing with the thing. Now, NRCC didn't create this boiling, roiling magma flow. We just decided to poke a hole and let it vent. We decided to try and find the thing under the thing, the thing that's driving the thing. We didn't create these dynamics, but we're sure living in them. We're sure products of them. We are members of this society, and all of the things that are going on are just as much in us and around us as they are in the world around us. And so it's affecting us. It's affecting us as individuals. It's affecting us as a community. And we just decided to go at it directly. As again, as I said, I believe the spiritual life gives us about our best opportunity to get moments like this one in history, to get these moments right. The spiritual life can inform how we bring our best selves to the fray. The spiritual life lends us tools for knowing ourselves, for a bold and truthful and honest exploration of our own shadow sides of the things that we tend to not look at in the course of our day-to-day -day lives. The spiritual life also equips us with tools for knowing one another and bringing divine love to the knowing, which fundamentally changes how we approach our conflicts, fundamentally changes how we approach our divisions. And I also believe that the spiritual life equips us with tools for fulfilling Jesus' mandate to go into the broken world and to make right what has gone wrong and to heal what has been wounded. Now that all sounds good, because it is. I mean, it sounds good, especially when you talk about it in theory. But in practice, it's an approach that is fraught with a million pitfalls. And the emotional tumult that we feel currently is testament to the pitfalls. Now also, each one of the pitfalls is a real thing, and it points to a real reality. But I am praying that together, we as a community can find the thing under the thing, the deeper thing, the realer thing, the truer thing. So I want to talk for a moment in this update about one of the current, current pits into which we have fallen, a current pit into which I have fallen. I've been making the case for a while now that healing the earth is our mandate as Christians. That's been going on for about 18 months if you've been paying attention to the themes and the lessons. I've also been making the case that we are better equipped to do that together than we are alone. Last week I said it this way, if we want to go fast, we go alone, but if we want to go long, we go together. In other words, what most churches do, which is to segregate into like-minded people, is much easier. It's much faster because sameness feels safe. Sameness is easier. It's easier because we all think and believe the same kinds of stuff. It's easier because we don't have to have these emotionally con uh, costly conflicts. It's easier, and so because it's easier, we can go faster. But when we go faster, we don't go as long, and we don't go as deep. 
We need people who are different from us. We need people who see differently. This fall, I did a lesson on the moral foundations from which both liberals and conservatives naturally draw. And I suggest that if we chase one group away, we'll go faster, but we'll only go with some of the moral instincts and we'll have a diminished picture, a diminished approach. So I've said all that. But this week, (laughs) in several conversations and in several emails, several have cried foul. Whoa, Doug, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. You're saying that both are important, but clearly from your lessons, you've already decided you are really a liberal. You can't lead us in a process that invites both sides to have a place at the table when, in fact, you have already aligned with one. You've already decided for us that the liberal way is the right way. You've already decided for us that the liberal issues are the truly important issues. So how are we to trust you, and how are we to trust in engaging in a process like the one that you're describing? It's like uh, we're going to sign up for this journey when the outcome is already set, so we'll say a bunch of really spiritual-sounding things, but in the end, the secret objective is to shoehorn us into a liberal program. So you can see what I mean. This oneness thing, it sounds good in theory, (laughs) but there be pitfalls, people. (laughs) Let's talk about this one. First, I want to thank those who raised the uh, alarm. Because most of the time, in most communities, this kind of stuff just stays underground unspoken. And I'm really glad, I truly am glad, that people feel secure enough in our community, invested enough in our community to have some skin in the game. So if it's any comfort to those who raised that particular objective this week, I also got just as many people on the left who are also mad at me. We can discuss their concerns another day. (laughs) But second, several who raised this concern were reiterating Tom's point that he made uh, after the second lesson last week. And that is this, that the illustrations that I have been using in my lessons lately, particularly last week, but then also in the Amos lesson before that, and maybe for the 18 months that I've been making this focus, that those are taken directly from the liberal program. And I know what they're talking about. I went back into my notes last week, which is pretty reflective of a lot of the lessons that I've given, and here's what I said. I said, I'm very concerned about the racial divide in our nation. Those are words that many liberal people use. I'm very concerned that as a society we're turning a blind eye to the hurt that our systems cause immigrants and LGBT people and foreigners. Again, that sounds like words that liberal people use. I'm concerned about polluting the water that we will leave to our grandbabies. In particular, I'm concerned about benzene and well water as we don't look at how fracking goes. And that's a liberal thing, that whole environmental tree-hugging thing. I'm concerned that we aren't going to leave our children a functioning government, a corrupted system in which money can buy legislation. That one's less liberal because I know that people on the right and the left are concerned about that, unless you think of it as anti-corporation or anti-business, and that is the liberal agenda. So sure enough, the things that I speak about do sound like the things that left-leaning people talk about. So I'm going to try my best to disclose to you my bias as uh, openly as I can, and you can decide if the process is rigged from the beginning. 
What I'm doing in this current conflict in our community is something that's a long pattern of mine. I've been doing it for a long time. Whenever there is a conflict and I feel the emotion that goes with it, I go into story listening mode. I actively seek out stories from both sides and I ask people to tell them to me. I started listening on the conflict around racial conflict back in the early 80s. Uh, because I had grown up in an area where that was not part of my life, and then when I moved, it was, and I immediately began to engage in story listening, asking for stories across the racial divides. And that was Los Angeles. That was different. That was the 80s. And after Trayvon Martin and all of the uh, emotional tumult that our nation felt at that time, I redoubled my story listening efforts, and I asked every black person I could find to tell me a story to tell me what's going on and help me understand and inform me. About seven years ago, I started asking every Spanish-speaking minister that I knew, and we were part of a group at that time that had several, most of whom are pretty politically conservative. I asked them to tell me stories about immigration from the perspective of immigrants, and I asked them to help me understand, and I asked them to inform me. I've done the same with folks who are in the healthcare industry. Every time I go to the doctor, I ask him to tell me what's going on, and I, people who work in insurance companies, what's going on. Same thing with the LGBT community. Please tell me your story. Tell me what's going on. Anytime I sense a divide, that has been my approach. Tell me what's going on. So I've heard a lot of stories, scores and scores and scores of stories from both sides of many divides. And in the listening, something has happened to me. Several of the issues that are big, glaring national issues for us still remain fuzzy in my mind, complicated, complex, tough to process. But a few of them, the ones that I have raised, the ones that sound liberal, after all that listening have kind of simplified in my mind. I don't any longer see them as political issues. I have begun begun to see them as moral issues. I began to see them as issues of right or wrong, which then, in my mind, makes them Christian issues. I've come to believe that the Christian church is right now standing at a moment in history that is making a demand upon us. And the demand being set upon us as people of faith is to arise and do what we are called to do, step into the breach and bring healing and restoration that this is a moment of history that we will be measured in when we look back. And it is a moment of moral decisions, not political decisions. And I've come to believe that our church as a community, as NRCC, needs to have a greater role than we have had in the past in actively pursuing healing of the wounds that have affected our nation. That's why I've been doing sermons that have been pointing us in this direction for some time. It's why I've spoken to the NeighborServe team, and I've asked them about how we will be more active in engaging more deeply in repairing the earth. Now, I'm not unaware that other people have other very pressing and very important concerns. In the last lesson, someone brought up that, that it is a moral issue that we care more effectively for those who grapple with mental health issues. And so I don't dispute any of those issues. But the operating assumption that I'm working on with those that I have listed is that those and the ones, and, and they were, I reiterated them in the Amos lesson, is that those have become unequivocal in the morality that is underlying them. 
And they have been pushed to us by the national issues of our collective life together. And they have been brought to our awareness. And now we don't get to ignore them. This is that moment in history. They're the, reason, the things that make these moral issues for me is that there is direct harm that is happening to our neighbors. And I've heard the stories. And Jesus teaches us about our responsibility to our neighbors when there is direct harm going on. Now, not everybody knows the harm because not everybody takes up this exercise that, I've been so, that has been so much a part of my life. But I do hear stories of direct harm happening. So going forward, I really do believe that our approach to these issues has to reflect both liberal and conservative sensibilities. And I know that the folks who were speaking up this week don't believe that. But I really do think we will be effective if we go together. We will go long if we go together. We need both tree huggers and business people working on environmental concerns. We need one another in the process. I don't think we can even think comprehensively, let alone act comprehensively, if we don't go together. But these issues, they're not issues of politics. I really do believe these are issues of morality. I believe they've become Christian issues. And so that's my bias. And you need to make the assessment on the basis of that, whether the system is rigged and that's the operating assumption that I'm going to bring to this process, that for us as Christians, repairing the breach is our mandate. And at this national moment, we are being alerted to these challenges, and they're calling us to points of action. Now, here's the thing. I've had lots of conversations with folks in our community over these last, since I got back from London. And there's some emotional volatility. And as soon as we get past that, as soon as we talk down the static in the system, nobody that I've spoken to, not conservative, not liberal, nobody is advocating that we ignore these issues. Nobody is saying that when we have the full picture that these things ought to be ignored. Now, we don't always all have the full picture. There is an educational component that's going to be required of us. We have to learn stories that we haven't learned. But once we do... Nobody wants to protect injustice. Nobody wants to ignore harm. My hope is to be able to lead our community as a diverse group of people to sense that this moment in, in history is awakening us to hurtful things that are happening to our neighbors and our Christian mandate to step into the breach. My hope is to lead a community into a set of skills and tools that will help us move past the emotional static that's so much a part of the system so that we can see beyond the thing to the thing under the thing. And together, when we can get past the static to be able to devise action points that will help us engage in healing the world. That is my hope. Those are my biases. That's my operating assumption. That's the update. Now, the lesson. I've had a lot of people telling me lately what I'm trying to do, what I just laid out for you, the time that I'm trying to do it, that it can't be done. They don't say those words, but that's the subtext. The subtext of what they're trying to tell me is that the only real option that we have is despair. 
Now, again, they don't use that word, but they say things like, no other approach than this would be reasonable, or no other approach than this would be practical. Now, again, nobody says those words. What they also don't say is this, but the subtext is there. If you don't quash the other, Doug, you're giving the devil a place. Again, not the words. But then I go talk to the devil, and the same thing. They say, if you don't quash the devil... (laughs) So the subtext of the voices that I'm hearing are saying, Doug, you've got to give up this fool's errand. There's no way to go forward from here. We can't go to church together. The best that we could muster was pseudo-community, polite veneer of community. And the election has blown the veneer away. We can't do it. It can't be done. This pretty picture of unity that you're talking about, it's not practical. The only real way forward, the subtext says is to eviscerate the devil and crush his or her dignity. That's the only practical way, Doug. The only real way forward is to rescind a place at the table for the devil because as long as the devil is here, we can't go forward. Which is all pretty discouraging, I have to tell you. Some really good people have made some really good cases for despair. And I've not been immune to a little bit of discouragement. But even so, I'm not buying it. Because here's the thing, baby Jesus. (laughs) Now we're really into the sermon. (laughs) So I had a conversation with a mom this week who's in the place in the spiritual journey that many of us are familiar with, the place called the wilderness. She's deconstructing the religion that she grew up with. And from where she is right now, she can't yet see the spiritual vitality that's on the other side of the deconstruction that happens when we wander through the spiritual desert. And the darkness that she is feeling feels particularly dark because it's Christmas time for her children. And she's feeling the loss of meaning of the religious decorations that she brings out with her children in the house. And she's feeling loss of the powerful and moving songs that she grew up with, that she wants to share with her children. And it's dark because this stage in the spiritual journey just is. It's dark. But it's particularly dark and it's particularly discouraging because she can't offer her children the beautiful religious experience that she grew up with. So we met at a coffee shop. What do I do about Christmas, Doug? What do I do about this profound sadness? What do I do with this profound loss? And after we talked a while, I asked her if she knew about the pagan origins of Christmas, (laughs) which I don't think did much to bolster her confidence in where the conversation was going. (laughs) But I rehearsed for her something that we shared a few Advents ago, that there isn't very much evidence that Jesus was born on December 25th. No. The reason that we celebrate Christmas on December 25th is because of how close it is to the winter solstice. I talked about how early Christians co-opted a ritual that was rich with meaning. It was a solstice ritual. It was a ritual of singing songs in the darkness, songs of hope. The solstice ritual is to light fires in the darkness, fires of hope. The solstice ritual is a ritual of celebrating hope in the face of fear. So on the shortest day of the year in the Northern Hemisphere, solstice celebrations have long informed a deep and abiding human truth. 
that it is on the darkest day of the year that we begin the slow, inexorable march toward the light and the warmth of spring. The earth is our teacher. It is on the darkest day of the year that we start the slow, inexorable march toward the richness and the bounty of harvest. And so on the days when it's cold and dark and we fear that we might not have enough food to make it through the winter, on the days when we fear that our bodies will succumb to the chill or that our children will die of winter sickness, on the darkest days of the year, it has been deeply embedded in the human experience that we gather to remind ourselves that hope is a deeper reality. It's a deeper reality than fear. And so we sing. We sing songs to one another. Songs of abiding truth, that sorrow comes in the night, but joy comes in the morning. We sing songs that light overcomes darkness and that life overcomes death and that goodness triumphs over evil. In the dead of winter, when our food stores are stretched, we have feasted. In the dead of winter, when the fuel had to be parsed out carefully, we lit fires. And in the dead of winter, when fear crept around the edges of our consciousness, we gathered together to sing. That deep human wisdom was embedded in the solstice celebration. And when the early Christians saw that happening, they said, yes, we know that truth. We also know that when despair, when despair creeps into our lives, when despair pushes out our hope, we also know that light is a truer truth. We also know that when fear grips our hearts, hope is a truer truth. And we also know that when things seem at their worst, there is a bigger reality and a truer truth. And we know this because baby Jesus. And that, I told this mom, is a story you can tell your kids even when the fixed story that you grew up with is unraveling. Even when doubts about the literal faith that you grew up gets fuzzier and fuzzier, that's a story that you can tell. It's a story you can tell your children as you pull out the creche. It's a story that you can tell your children as you put the baby in the manger. It's a story that you can tell your children when you pull out the cows and the donkeys and the shepherds and the sheep. You can tell them that our Christian story of baby Jesus is a story about sorrow that comes in the night, but a deeper and a truer joy that comes in the morning. Ours is a story of a baby who barely registered on people's awareness a baby that barely represented a flicker of hope, a hope that wouldn't be realized for years, but it's a hope that speaks to a universal truth, a truth that we humans have sensed deeply whenever we pay attention to the great teachings that our earth has given us and that God has given us, that there is a light that is bigger than darkness and that there is a life that is bigger than death. And I told this mom, it's a truth that's no less true today. This moment in history contains some of the same dramatic elements that were present when the nation of Israel was occupied by the armies of Rome and had 
seen their share of darkness. They were embroiled in their own deep national emotional struggles just as we are at this moment. There were racial divisions then just like there are racial divisions now. There were accusations of blame being hurled from one Jewish party at another because we've got this right and we are doing it the right way and we are the way that this problem is going to be solved and you're doing it wrong and you are the devil. It felt to them like hope had been too long deferred just like it feels like hope has been too long deferred now. But for them and for us, baby Jesus... Our story has reverberated through history into all the way to this day. Hope wins. Life triumphs over darkness. Love triumphs over fear. And when we strip away the fixed certitude that often gets in the way of people who are on the wilderness part of the journey, the great truth remains. The essence of Advent and the essence of Christmas, the story that our earth, our best teacher, tells us, is that when the day is darkness, that's the day when light starts coming. When winter is at its deepest, that's the day spring starts coming. The day fear grips our hearts deeply, that's the day that hope calls to us. Now the day will come when our racial divisions will be healed. The day will come when our political animosity will be healed. The day will come when our blind eyes begin to see it's hard to say because it has been a long and hard path. And it doesn't look like that will be tomorrow. But our story, the story of baby Jesus, is that the day will come. The day will come when Emmanuel, God with us, will bid our sad divisions cease. It's hard to hold on to that hope when the darkness is so dark. But that's the very hope that rises within us, that the strength that is set within us because the Spirit of God is set within us is the strength to make right what has gone wrong because Emmanuel, because God with us, because the Spirit of God is within you and is, is within me. And it turns out that when hope has done what hope does, give us access to a divine strength that, w that is within us, it will be your hands and it will be my hands that will be the vehicles through which those sad divisions cease. It will be us operating under the mandate of the Spirit of God that indwells us that will bring hope to darkness. The hope is the releasing agent the strength that comes, comes from the Spirit of God that is in each of us. There have been darker times before, even darker than today. There have been hatreds and there have been divisions and there have been woundings that have happened even worse than the ones that we are experiencing today. And in each of those moments of history, when Christmas came around, when Advent came around, the Christian church has spoken of hope. When the winter solstice came around, the other religious traditions spoke of hope. The promise of Jesus was the promise that Rome would not win in the end. That our failures and our shortcomings would not be the final word. That death in all of its iterations, 
death to life and love and hope and truth and beauty. Death in all of its iterations, including the death of our bodies, would not be the final word. Hope showed up in a baby. Now hope takes time to grow up. Hope takes time to manifest. And it's a struggle to hold on to hope when the darkness is so dark. But the capacity to repair the breaches in our world depends upon that struggle. It depends on our ability to hold on to hope in the face of despair. And to hold on to the belief in the real experience of the indwelling spirit leading us on an inexorable march toward making right what has gone wrong, toward making alive what has died, and toward making just what is unjust. So that's an update, and that's a sermon. It's bad. Let's not sugarcoat it. It's bad in our world. It's bad in our nation, and we've chosen to invite the bad in here, into this sanctuary where we usually come for comfort, the place we usually come for peace. We've invited the bad in here. It's bad. But bad is not the final word. There's a bigger word. There's a truer word. The word is hope. Sorrow lasts or the night, but joy comes in the morning. And Holy Spirit, may it be that those ancient words that captured the experience of so many of our forebears, that those ancient words would capture our experience as well. That we as individuals and we as a community, we would stand in testament to the validity of, the power of, the efficacy of those words to guide us forward as effective carriers of life and effective carriers of light to the world that we live in, to this community, and to the world around us. Be that so, in the name of baby Jesus. Amen. Well, if you